Well, this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at Esther again. So we are in Esther chapter 4. So if you want to grab your Bible and turn. Again, if you hadn't heard, Pastor Jeff is on vacation for the month, so I am filling in, and we're going to be working through several chapters of Esther. Last week, we we covered chapter 3 of Esther, and we saw that uh, things are not good. (laughs) We saw great trouble come up uh, for the Jewish people and for Esther and for Mordecai in particular. Um, The Jews are to be exterminated. Haman Uh, felt slighted, and his pride rose up, and his anger and his hatred toward the Jews, and King Ahasuerus didn't really care and said, sure, go ahead and exterminate them. Fine with me. And they sat down to eat and drink and be merry. And all of this, if you remember, happened the day before the Passover feast where the people of God were reminded of who God is. He is a God who saves. He is a God who miraculously provides. And the main point of my sermon last week was uh, that God is there even in times of trouble. Remember who He is. And that was kind of the, the point that I was trying to drive at with that quote-unquote coincidence that this would all happen right before the Passover is that was an opportunity for the people, even though this horrible set of circumstances was coming down, it was an opportunity for them to remember who God is and what He does in this life. Well, today, the main point is, is similar to that of last week. It's going to start with the the same phrase, God is there in the midst of trouble. So if you want to write this down, go ahead and do it. Main point, God is there in the midst of trouble. But instead of remembering who He is, today the main point is God is there in the midst of trouble. Act like He is. He is there. We need to remember that he's there. We need to remember who he is. And then based on who he is and based on the fact that he's there, we need to act. And this is the challenge that we'll see uh, Esther and Mordecai facing in this scripture today. We're going to cover all of chapter 4 and into uh, chapter 5. And hopefully you've uh, taken time already to, to read and consider these, uh, this passage, but uh, I'll go ahead and just read through it quickly. So follow along. Esther 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, For no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. 
And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What's your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared, and as they were drinking wine and after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king, to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it tells us of who you are. 
and how you work in this world in the past and now in our lives too. And Lord, we hope that as we consider these scriptures that you will enlighten our hearts and our minds, that you will fill us with love for you, that you will help us to know how we ought to live our lives as those who claim you as our Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that you will uh, speak through me, help me to speak clearly, and help all of us to hear from your word. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, along with the main point, I have kind of a simple outline for us today. So, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, I'm calling that mourning. In that section, the basic theme is that the people are mourning this decree that has come down. The second point is opportunity, and we see that in chapter 4, verses 4 through 14. There is opportunity for action. There's opportunity for the people to do something. And then the last uh, point is action. And we see that in uh, chapter 4, verse 15 through 5, 8. The people do something. Esther does something. Mordecai does something. And we're going to see how that all plays out. So we have mourning, opportunity, and action. So first, as we look at the, the first several verses there of chapter 4, an interesting thing, Mordecai hears this decree and he tears his clothes and he puts on sackcloth and ashes and he goes up to the city gate and he's, he's mourning. He's weeping because the decree has been made that the Jews should be wiped out, annihilated. But somehow, Esther is kind of in the dark. And we see in verse 4, Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed that Mordecai was out there mourning, that he was in sackcloth, and that something was obviously wrong. And we see that uh, Mordecai sends a copy of the decree to Esther. Now, this is kind of strange. You would think that she would have heard what was going on, and maybe she, maybe she did hear what was going on, but just didn't fully put two and two together. Um, but however that worked, we see that Mordecai's uh, reaction to all that was going on was that he went out and he publicly was mourning, weeping, wailing, sackcloth and ashes. And you know, it's interesting. This seems very foreign to us, I think. It's very foreign to me. I've never torn my clothes and sat down in sackcloth and ashes. Has anybody here? I don't see any hands. No, this idea of, of truly mourning over circumstances, over things that are out of your control over bad things that happen in the world. To us, in, in our Western culture and society, um, the idea of mourning and weeping, unfortunately, I think, is very foreign to us. Even when a loved one who, who is close to us passes away, 
so often, I think we have this attitude that we just need to kind of buck up, be strong, and, and keep moving. You know, and that's the American way. Like, don't let anything affect you. Just keep on going. The only problem is that's not really good for us. As, as human beings, we are created in the image of God, and one of the things that God does is he mourns. He weeps when his people are hurting. And it is good for us to, to do the same. Sometimes we just need to stop and mourn. We need to realize the, the gravity of the situation that's going on, and we need to let it affect us so that we can learn from it, so that we really can move on, because too often, if we just are so concerned about, hey, press on, press on, press on, we never, we never fully deal with the situation at hand. So I think it's a, a good example that we see Mordecai and the people mourning. It says that in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and lamenting. And we might see this and go, come on, Jews, buck up. But I think the response is appropriate. They stop, they realize the severity of the circumstances, and they mourn. This is not something that, that we do well ourselves, and unfortunately, I think also in our culture, we don't help others mourn either. You know, too often we're, we're kind of like Job's friends. They did okay at the beginning, if you remember back to Job, because they came and they sat with Job, but then Man, it was time to figure out what the problem is. And let's go, Job. Let's get back at it. You know, let's, and they had all kinds of advice. None of it was very good. But we tend to just skip over the sinning with Job part and go right into the, all right, let's fix this. And one of the things that, that we can do and should do, and I think should consider more how we do this, with each other as a body of Christ is to weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn. That's exactly what Romans 12:15 says. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Yeah. Are we good at that? Are we uncomfortable with hard situations when they either hit us or hit those around us? It is uncomfortable. But there's something to be said about just being with somebody else in their grief and in their sorrow. And in fact, that's what we see in Psalm 34. Psalm 34 verse 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And we see this throughout scripture that God's promise to his people is, I will be with you. I will be near to you. In good times and in bad times, I'm there for you. And I think that that's something that, that we as, as a church and as Christians in the, what century are we? 21st century? <laughs> we ought to be better 
at just being with each other, mourning when serious things happen, helping by just being there, being a comfort. When bad circumstances come, we ought to do this. We ought to even be with each other as we deal with sin in our lives. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, how often do we see somebody struggling with some sort of sin and we think, well, boy, I hope they figure that out. Well, go help them. (laughs) Be with them. Bear that burden with them. That's what we are called to do as the body of Christ. And yet we tend to want to just be individuals, not a group, not a family, not the body of Christ, but just leave me alone, I'll take care of it. But that's not how the body should work. So that is the uh, mourning that we see here. Mordecai, faced with these circumstances that are going on, he, he stops and he mourns, and the people mourn too. And they cry out to God, and the amazing thing, the great thing is that we see and we know that the Lord is with the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. But there does come a time where you have to start moving, right? I I was struck thinking about this. I was struck by David, and if you remember the situation when he sinned with Bathsheba, they ended up with a baby, and that baby got sick. And what did David do? He, he prayed, and he weeped, and he mourned, and he wouldn't be consoled. He wouldn't eat. But then the baby passed away. And kind of a, a strange thing happened. David, when he heard about it, he got up, and he cleaned himself up, and he moved on. He, he got back to what he needed to be doing. In 2 Samuel 16, 19 through 23, it says, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, and when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And I don't say this to say that we should just, when somebody dies, get up and stop weeping and mourning. I say this to to make the point that there does come a time where you need to move and start to get back to the things that you were doing and the things that need to be done. And we, we see um, this here in this opportunity section, verses 4 through 14. First off, Mordecai goes to the gate. He is weeping, he's still mourning, but he starts to take action. He goes to the gate where he knows that he'll be seen. Um, and it says that 
In verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her what Mordecai was doing, the queen was deeply distressed. She sends to him and tries to get him to to stop weeping and mourning, and he says no, and he sends a, a message to Esther. And basically what, what he is doing is, he is he's taken that time to mourn and weep, and now he's moving into a time where he realizes, okay, there's an opportunity here. I need, to, I need to act. I need to do something. And his action is to go to Esther, who has coincidentally been put in this place of being queen of the land. Huh, isn't that nice? This is one of those recurring themes in this book are these quote-unquote coincidences, which really aren't coincidences. They are the hand of God at work in all of this. And so Esther sends to Mordecai, Mordecai sends a word back to her, and, and basically Mordecai says, look, this is time for action now. We've wept, we've mourned, and this is a serious thing, but, but we have an opportunity. And you, Esther, in particular, have an opportunity. If you look at verse 13, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This message from Mordecai is basically telling Esther, you've been put in the perfect place to do something. You have an opportunity to act. What are you going to do? And I love how he he says, uh, if you don't do something, deliverance will rise from another place. He's confident in God. He's confident that the Lord is, is working in these situations. But the fact of the matter is, Esther has an opportunity. She's been put here as the queen for a reason. And this is interesting too, because if you think back to how she got there, it wasn't a pleasant process. It wasn't the best of circumstances that brought her there to be queen, and yet, there she is. And how many times in our lives can we look and see how maybe it wasn't the best of circumstances that brought us to a place, but now we're here, and there's an opportunity for us to do something, to serve the Lord or to help others, whatever it may be. Maybe a chance to to share the gospel with somebody. God is sovereign over it all. He's there in the midst of trouble. The struggle that we have is to act like it and to act on it based on who we know him to be. So Mordecai presents this opportunity to Esther. And This is a a real moment of decision for Esther. Do I do something or do I not? 
As the queen, maybe she would have been protected. Mordecai says, eh, don't think you're getting off. <laughs> you know, they're going to find you. They're going to know that you're a Jew. But this is a, a really hard situation that she's put in. And fortunately, we see that, that I think she responds well. Verse 16, or verse 15, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. See, faced with this crazy situation, and, but faced with the opportunity to act, Esther resolves to start action. And notice the first thing that she does. She fasts. Now, it's interesting because the way that this book is written it's almost as if uh, an unbeliever is writing this and recounting all that's gone on, but being an unbeliever, they just don't see God in this, and they don't mention God at all. But this act of fasting, like you could, you could imagine maybe a, a reporter coming and going, well, it was really strange, you know, uh, Esther she heard about this stuff, and she didn't eat for a few days, and then she went and met with the king. And it's reported or it's written to us as if this is just some sort of thing or ritual, but what's the purpose of fasting? The purpose of fasting is to give up food for the purpose of prayer and for the purpose of focusing in on, on God. So even though it's not specific, I, I do believe that this was Esther and Mordecai and the Jews calling out to God, weeping and mourning and fasting and saying, help. And you'll notice too that this is action. The, the third point of, of my sermon, the, the action point, I think the action starts in verse 15, in prayer. And so often, I, I know I find myself uh, struggling with this, the idea that prayer is action. You know, if, if something comes up in my life, I, I want to I start doing something about it. And somebody says, well, have you prayed about it? And I go, well, no, I want to do something about it. But wait a second, isn't prayer doing something? I mean, that's, that's what we're told it is. It, it is requesting from God. It, it's, it's action. It is you submitting your will to what <laughs> the Lord has decreed. And, and there, there is action in that. And the crazy thing is that God responds to our prayers. He works in and through our prayers. And so stopping to pray is not doing nothing. Stopping to pray is not inaction. It is 
the beginning of action. It's what we should do first when faced with hard circumstances. We should stop and pray. And that's exactly what the people do. It's what Esther does. And Esther says, hey, get everybody together. And for three days, let's fast, let's pray. So Esther was, was faced with this great opportunity to act. And by the grace of God, she started to act. And her first action was prayer. Now, after praying, she does something else. As we start to read in chapter 5, on the third day, Esther put on her royal, her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Now, why is this such a big deal? Well, if we look back to verse 11, we see that this is a big deal because this was Esther taking her life in her own hands. Verse 11 of chapter 4 says, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. So in doing what she did, Esther is going against the law of the land and she's literally taking her life in her own hands. But she's doing it for the benefit of her people. And she has resolved that whatever comes, it's, it's worth it to take this risk. This is, uh, this is not the exact same situation, but as I was, you know, thinking through this and thinking through just the the weight of this whole situation and, and the stress that must have been on Esther, knowing that she is moving towards this action that could very well be life and death. I, I couldn't help but just be reminded of, of Jesus in Gethsemane. You know, he went to Gethsemane knowing what was coming. And his his great desire in Gethsemane, we see him even praying to God and saying, God, if this cup could be passed, like if there is any other way, that'd be nice. But then coming to the realization or just being reaffirmed in the knowledge that there is no other way. There is no other way that people will be saved. I have to do this. I have to go to the cross. You know, sometimes I, I, I know that that whole process of Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane and then the days after that, I know that that was horrific. But I think sometimes I, I lose sight of that. And I just think, oh yeah, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And, and that's... True, he did. 
But if you stop and consider the, the weight of that whole process, I think it should result in just more worship of him for going through all of that stress and anxiety and the emotions and the, the turmoil of that time, like he did that for us. Esther's not a perfect display of the gospel, but I think we, we see the gospel semi-clearly in the fact that she was literally taking her life in her hands for the benefit of her people. And that's exactly what, what God, what Jesus did for us. That's the gospel message. The gospel message is that, that, that we are all sinners, every single one of us. And we rightly, justly deserve eternal punishment in hell. We deserve separation from God, not closeness to him. And yet, because God loved us, he sent his son to take that punishment of our sin on himself, on the cross. And you know, this is something that we struggle with constantly. Coming to terms with the actual sinfulness of our sin and the actual uh, horrifying reality of our sin. It really does deserve death. And not just death, but, but eternal punishment. And Jesus, because of his love for us, went through all of that, going up to the cross, dying on the cross, taking my sin and my guilt on himself, taking your sin and your guilt on himself. It was, it was horrible. The worst thing that has ever happened in the history of anything is the cross, And yet it's the greatest thing. Because since Jesus was willing to do that, he can offer us forgiveness. He can offer us grace and mercy. And simply through faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross, you can be saved for all of eternity. Hebrews 12, 1 to 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why would Jesus go through all of that, well, it was for the joy that was set before him of offering salvation to us, which is mind-blowing. And the fact that we can, through simple faith, be saved is incredible. We don't have to go through 
the cross. He did it for us. Amazing. And here in Esther, we have this, this picture of salvation and the gospel in Esther as she, one single person, puts her life on the line for the good of her people. Now, that, that verse that I just read, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You see, there, there's something that happens when you are saved. You, you're changed. You're transformed. The old is gone. Behold, all things are made new. And one of the results of salvation is that we should want to serve God with our whole life. Romans 12 says, don't be conformed any longer to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And in, this, uh, in these verses here where, where Esther makes this decision, it's, it's kind of like she's, there's no going back. <laughs> you know, she's made a decision and she's acting on it now. And the decision that she has made has been made through prayer and I think through remembrance of who God is. He's the Passover God. He's the God who saves, who delivers. And she is making here a, a leap of faith. And she's committed. So she goes before the king and the king holds out the scepter and she takes it and she is safe. Whew. Story over, right? Well, not quite. <laughs> king says, hey, Esther, what do you want? I'll give you anything, up to, up to half of my kingdom. And Esther's request is kind of a strange one. She says, well, why don't you and Haman come to dinner? Okay, so he gets Haman and they go to dinner. After dinner, they're drinking again. You catching a theme there with Hasweirs? Uh, they're drinking and he says, oh, Esther, what do you want? I'll give you anything, up to half the kingdom. And Esther has basically the same request. Well, I'd like to have dinner with you guys again, but let's, let's do it later. Now, what's going on here? Well, there's all kinds of speculation about, well, Esther is very cunning and she's, you know, working up, she's kind of schmoozing King Ahasuerus. Other people say, well, she's a coward. She can't work up the gumption to, to ask for people to be saved. And whatever it really is, it's hard to know, but this is how things happened. And I do tend to think, you know, Esther was faced with this opportunity. She took it, and now she's, she's working it out. You know, and maybe it was that she didn't have enough gumption to just present her request to the king the first night, so she's like, oh, maybe the next night. And, and if that's the case, I think that that's kind of encouraging. <laughs> because how many times have you been faced with, with some sort of important decision and and, and you're just, you're working on it. 
you're working up the gumption to do it, and maybe you, you make an attempt and it doesn't quite work out, but then you're, coming, you're gonna come back to it. You know, and I think that that is uh, just a, a real picture of humanity and a picture of God's grace, too, and mercy. Sometimes we don't get it right the first time. But if we keep on that same course, praise God, he's still working. He's still moving things, and they're still going to work out. And I think that that's kind of encouraging. Now, just a couple more things here. First off, Esther is, is faced with this decision to act, and she does act. And that's the, the great challenge that we have as believers. If we have put our faith in Christ, we are called to act, called to act according to what we know of, of the scriptures. And it affects every aspect of our lives, from the things we think to the things we do, the way we talk about each other. We are called to action as followers of Christ. But I think it, it's important to, to look at this and to see that Esther isn't just making a blind leap here. I entitled the sermon Leap of Faith, and I think that that's a true statement. She's taking a leap of faith, but I think that sometimes we think of leaps of faith in wrong ways. A leap of faith is not an ignorant leap. It's not like uh, Esther is going, well, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I guess I'll go talk to the king. It, it's not ignorance. She knew what could happen. She knew the circumstances that were going on. It wasn't that she was acting out of ignorance. She was acting out of knowledge. So a leap of faith is not a leap of ignorance. A leap of faith is also not blind. Sometimes Christians are, are accused of just blindly following after God. And we come up against circumstances and we say, hey, I trust that God is gonna bring me through this. And sometimes the world looks at that and goes, well, you guys are just blind. You don't know that there's really anything there and you're just hoping that things are going to work out. You're, ba you're basically just closing your eyes and going, well, I'm going to take a step. But that's not what a true leap of faith is. A true leap of faith is eyes wide open. And it's taken because your eyes are wide open. And because you know who God is. And because you see in his word what he has done, and you see what he promises, and you see the situation in front of you, and you say, all right, here we go. A leap of faith is not blind. It's not like jumping out of an airplane and going, well, I hope I folded my parachute right. It's knowing that you folded your parachute right and taking the leap. A leap of faith is also not based on results. It's not as though you can see, oh, this is gonna work out, 
so then I'm going to act. That would not be a leap of faith. <laughs> that would be just doing something because you know the results. A leap of faith is saying, I don't exactly know what the results are, but based on what I do know, based on the fact that my eyes are wide open to this, and I'm confident in God, I am going to act regardless of the results. And we see that here when, when Esther says, if I perish, I perish. She's presented with an opportunity. She knows who God is. She's well aware of this situation, but she takes a leap of faith, trusting God, even though she doesn't fully know the outcome. If I perish, I perish. And I think that that, again, is a good example for us because so many times we're faced with situations, decisions, and we want to know the outcome before we make the decision. But here's the thing, that's not life. <laughs> we are faced every day with decisions that we don't know the outcome of, and, and we have to act anyways. So act in faith, faith in the God that you know, faith in what the Bible says about this God, and, and act. And it is a leap of faith in that sense of not knowing the particular outcomes, but this is what we're called to as believers, is to act according to God's word, knowing who he is, not knowing the future. So, we're coming to the end here, and we'll, we'll pick it up again next week with the second dinner party. But I just, I, I think it's encouraging to me to read this chapter and this portion of Scripture because, again, this is life. Esther is, is faced with this huge monumental decision that she needs to make, and she takes a leap of faith. It's not blind, it's not ignorant, it's based on who God is. It's based on what she knows and what she's seen. But she takes action, she does it. She doesn't shrink back, and she's willing to take a risk, and that is the Christian life. Acting on what you know to be true of God and his word in the situations you're faced in in life, not completely knowing the outcome. That's the Christian life. It's walking by faith. And I think we have an example of it here in Esther. So the question is, are you walking by faith? I don't think the question really is, well, what is my King Hazuerus? And what is it like, eh. Just, are you walking by faith in the big things and the little things of your life? I think Esther gives us a good example here, and I'm encouraged to do it. I, I pray that you would see your life through those same lenses of, am I acting by faith or not? Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, this time to be able to consider Esther and Mordecai and the situation that the, the Jews are in. And I thank you that you have given us this example of a, a very hard circumstance and, and how to navigate it. Lord, you tell us that you are near to us, that you are with us who believe. And I just hope and pray that, that we would act like it. Lord, in good circumstances, in hard circumstances, you are there. Help us as those who call on your name, as those who trust in Jesus as our Savior, help us to act as if you are there. We pray this in your name. Amen.